Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alzan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? Our number is 291-6901. And you use the area code here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is 225. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go. Wish you would because we love hearing from folks. Wherever right. you may be, be, yeah, be it, it Baton Rouge or Bangor, Maine, doesn't make a bit of difference. <laughs> <laughs> Just call, be glad to try to help you out and point you in the right direction. There you go. Oh. I thought today we would talk just a little bit about a number of different topics. Sure. Just because I didn't have any one big topic, <laughs> <laughs> to, to be honest. But, you know, one of the things that I get a lot of email on, and in different forms, uh-huh. depending on the subsystem being affected, but for instance, someone will say, well, my brake lights don't work. Right. And I've changed the switch, and I've changed the bulbs, and I've changed the fuse, and it still doesn't work. What do you think it is? Well, obviously, that's a question that you're not going to be able to answer just because there are literally thousands of things it could be. Sure. But the way to solve that issue is always the same. And with any electrical circuit, you start on one end or the other. You can kind of just take a pick. Sure. You you can always, like, for instance, the brake lights. Mm Mm-hmm. Go back to the taillights. Right. Take the bulbs out. Take a digital voltmeter. Right. Check and see if you have power and ground when your pedal's being pressed. If you don't have power and ground there, then go to the fuse. Right. You know you don't have power that far. Now, if you've got power and ground there, then obviously something with the bulb or the or contact the between the bulb and the socket or something like right. that is the issue. The new 3157 bulbs, which have been around since early 2000s, mm-hmm. I think, they have a high failure rate of the sockets burning up. Right. You can change the bulb. It'll work for a couple days, and just because the socket has already gotten hot. And well, it and it's a plastic-based bulb with the electrical contacts kind of just there. So those contacts get hot, and they melt the plastic, and then they don't maintain the tension. And when they don't maintain tension, it starts to arc and all that, which produces a tremendous amount of heat. Which burns the socket Burns up. the socket up. You put a new bulb in there. It may even work for a day or two, and then you hit a bump, and it quits, quits working, working and that sort of thing. But let's say you do not have power and ground there. Well, you would go all the way to the opposite end of the circuit. Go to the fuse box, but don't stop at just checking the fuse. Mm-hmm. If the fuse is good, go to the back side of it, back probe the terminals, and see if the power is traveling through the fuse box. Correct. Because it could be the contact at the fuse could be bad. Now, if you've got power coming out of the fuse box but not getting to the socket, the next thing is to find a logical spot somewhere halfway between or near halfway in between. Right. Many times that will be either the brake light switch or the turn signal switch because those are kind of halfway between. Same procedure. You check, do I have power and ground going into the switch? Yes. Do I have it coming out of the switch? No. Okay, well, then the switch is bad. If I have power and ground coming out and going in, then that means the power is between there and the taillight, the mm-hmm. problem. If I do not have power and ground at the switch, then the problem is between the fuse box and switch. So I've eliminated half the possibilities right there. Just with that simple test. With one simple test. So then I just go halfway again. Don't get fooled by using that digital voltmeter and not loading the circuit when you're checking it. That's true. Because you you will get 12 volts through the circuit unloaded if it's just one little strand of wire holding the circuit together. Correct. You When you load it, the circuit cannot take that load just through that thin little wire, mm-hmm. and you will notice that now you don't have voltage there. Right, or you have a much lower voltage there. And truly, a voltage drop test would, would be more that. revealing. That's where you can put a voltmeter around the circuit that you're trying to check. 
hit the brakes and the voltage starts flowing around that circuit, well, then you know you, know you got a wiring issue or right. something between those two points has gone, gone south. Right. And if you go to our website and you just type in voltage drop, it will tell you all about how voltage drop testing works and all that sort of thing. That is far more accurate in many cases than just checking voltage. Yep. Because, as you say, if there's a restriction in the circuit, it's sort of like a water hose. If you have a garden hose and somebody pulls up and parks on top of it, a very small amount of water may leak past. It's not 100% blocked off. If it sits there long enough, the pressure will build to full pressure. Sure. But the second you push the nozzle, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drop right off because you have no flow. Right. Now, in this case, the pressure would be the voltage and the flow would be the amperage. It's the same thing with electrical circuit. If the connector is bad and only one of those little strands of wire is making contact, it may conduct 12 volts or 12 and a half volts. But when you load the circuit, it's going to drop way down. It may drop to whatever, Whatever. not enough to make the circuit work. Now, what makes it so much more difficult nowadays is with technology being what it is, many, many times there are things in the circuit that you don't even expect to be there. Mm -hmm. For instance, sometimes it will run through the airbag clock spring if the circuit happens to go up the steering column. So that's another component. Almost always it runs through the turn signal switch in one fashion or another. Uh, Some cars may not, but a lot of them do. And the turn signals can still work, but the part that interrupts the brake lights may not work. Right. Just that part of the terminal may have gone by. Or wire or, or whatever. More and more now you're getting into digital circuits rather than the old analog 12 volt circuits like we always had. And that's where the brake light switch is not a switch that interrupts the flow of electricity. What it does instead is sends a signal to the BCM. The BCM has an SCR, silicon control rectifier, which actuates the taillights. Or maybe even it sends a pulse, a request for brake lights. And there's an encoder back in the the bulb. the bulb area that interprets that pulse and turns the brake lights or the turn signal or whatever it wants. It may only have, maybe multiplex. Right. Where there's only one wire going to the back, sort of like a cable in your house, and it sends pulses. The interpreter or the module in the taillight is going to interpret what light it wants to turn on and turn it on. When you start to get to that kind of technology, really unless you are very, very versed in electrical theory and have all the tooling and equipment to handle it, you're probably going to have to send that out. Sure. It's just something you're not going to be able to check yourself. And more and more, we're starting to get into issues like that. I know I had a gentleman who had written earlier in the week, and he was, I don't remember the exact circuit he was talking about, but he was saying, well, da-da-da-da-da. I said, well, it sounds like this part. It was an ignition call, but they were all combined calls. Right. And he says, well, I've, uh, I've got, uh, power going to it, but I have a misfire on cylinder number three. I swapped the plugs. It made no difference. I swapped the injectors. It made no difference. And I checked compression. I had good compression. So okay. I think the call is bad. How can I test the call? Well, unless you've got a digital lab scope that can read the pulse when the call fires, you really can't. Mm-hmm. So you have to sort of determine at that point, is it less expensive to pay someone to check the call or is the call less expensive I'm just going to change it on a maybe. And I would say the likelihood is pretty high that you're going to fix the problem. 
Right, because you've done all the rest of the tests. You've done due diligence, even though you haven't tested the call itself. And theoretically, it could be something else. It's possible. I mean, any, anything's possible. But let's but, say the coil costs eighty dollars, and it's going to cost a hundred dollars to check it. Right. Well, then it might be cheaper just to try a call and see what happens. And that kind of flies in the face of logic. I don't like throwing parts at a problem to try to solve it. But sometimes substituting another part is the cheapest way to go about the diagnosis and does make some sense. If the part is easy to change, relatively inexpensive, and the likelihood is pretty high. Then I'd say go ahead. And yeah, go. you you got to play the odds right. more or less. And that's one thing that every technician has to understand or he has to have a service manager that understands that everything is a matter of odds. There are certain circuits that it costs more money to test than what the part you're testing costs. costs. So in that case, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. I remember the Ford trucks had a tremendous failure rate with ABS sensors back, yep. I don't know, what was that, in the 80s? Uh, late 90s, I think. Late 90s. They had a huge, huge failure rate, and almost every time they would come in, it would be the rear vehicle speed sensor. Sure. Now, it wasn't the only thing that could make the light come on, clearly, but that sensor was only about, I don't it's know, like $10. 20, yeah, 10 20 bucks. And it took about five minutes to change it. So many times when they came in, we would just pop a sensor on there and see, because the failure rate was so high, if it wasn't bad now, it was probably going to fail in the yeah. future. I had about an 85 90% chance of fixing the problem. Right. It was going to cost the customer a lot less money than me spending an hour testing all the circuits. Just to find out that the sensor that was bad. That sensor was bad. So in some cases like that, it would make sense to go ahead and just replace the sensor based on knowledge, based on history, and see what happens. If it doesn't fix the problem, then you can go into more advanced diagnostics because the next step was going to probably take about an hour. You, sure. You're going to have to go and start checking uh, modules and power feeds and grounds and all that sort of thing. So you're going to eat up more time than what that one sensor costs. The failure rate was very high, so it was just made sense to just replace the sensor and see. And sometimes that does make sense. A lot of times, maybe even most of the time, that does not make sense. Right. And yeah, Just because the, just of the complexity and the, the price of the, the replacement part. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, there the parts well over two hundred dollars. Oh, very depending on what what you're working on. Well, very often, and also if you're going back with aftermarket parts because of the high rate of failures on those, where they don't even meet the spec right out the box, you can't assume that's a known good part. And that fools a lot of people. Oh just, yeah, just because it's new in the box does not make it good. I mean, at the shop, we turn parts. Used to turn a bunch of parts away. Right. Until we found a, a good line of parts. Right. And with OEM stuff, you don't have nearly as much of that problem. You still occasionally will see. Sure. Occasionally. But you can definitely, your odds are way, way better. And I keep using the word odds because almost everything in auto repair is a matter of the odds. you playing one thing against another thing right. because shop time is expensive. You want to minimize that, but you don't want to make a mistake that costs you more down the road. Hey, you got to take our first quick little break. Be right back with a whole lot more. Kate, we can shop tomorrow. I'm off to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems before they become huge repairs down the road. You know, things like small rattles and shakes can become issues and you never can be too... A general inspection each year would be great for my marriage. 
Kate, thanks for bringing David in for his general inspection. Overall, he's in pretty good shape for an older model. I replaced his sensitivity regulator, which was getting a little worn. His not listening to my partner and leave the seat up lights were both about to come on, so I fixed that. As far as preventive maintenance, more fiber, less beer, and watch his portion control, especially on the weekends. And thank goodness for Agco. Kate? Kate, are you listening? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sounds like a general inspection from Agco can improve my marriage. I, I mean vehicle. Uh, improve my vehicle. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. You just join us. This is the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. If you have an automotive question, comment. You just give us a call. We're talking a little bit about electrical circuits, diagnostics, stuff like that today. But that doesn't matter. You can always call with anything that might be on your mind. That's it. We'll get you a great answer for it. There you go. We'll try to help you out and maybe save you some money. And I get a question a lot of times. I say, well, why is it so difficult to diagnose these problems? There's, couldn't they make it easier? And the answer to that is certainly they could. There's any number of things they could do to make the diagnostic process just a whole, whole lot easier. But you have to remember their, I guess their main things are the things that are regulated. For instance, they have government regulations they have to meet. Right. They have price regulations that the CEO is going to mandate they've got to meet. They've got a lot of criteria, but no one really stands to gain in their organization from making this car easier to diagnose or repair. In fact, exactly the opposite is true. There's nothing that is going to drive a person to a new car more so than a repair they can't fix or a very high or very expensive repair. Right. That's the things that drive people to buy new cars. And don't ever forget that they are in the business, number one, of making money. That's right. Yeah. And they sell cars to make money. Providing transportation for the public is way, way down the list somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Making money is job one. That's, and that's always it. has been. And so the more complicated they can make a repair really is sort of kind of in their best interest. Or the less repair information they can give out to the aftermarket or to anybody, or to anybody yeah. really. Because a lot of people say, well, they're trying to drive the work back to their dealers. But that's not really the case. They don't care about service. Right. Companies like GM, Ford, and Chrysler, they want to make fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 sales. That little $1,000, $1,200 repair, that is chump change to them. They can't even measure that. Right. They, w- they want to turn you to a new car where they can make that fifty, sixty, or right. however much $1,000. Right. They want those big, big things. And, and see, they make a lot more money on that. GM and Ford and Chrysler don't make anything on repairs. Right. I mean, the dealership may make a few dollars on it. Uh, they may sell a few parts. But, again, that's chump change to them. They're not even worried about that. They would much rather just drive you to a new car. Oh, yeah. If at all possible. Let's go to our phone lines. We've got Trey online. Good morning, Trey. Good morning, y'all. How are y'all doing? Doing today? wonderful, doing sir. Great. Great, great. I had emailed you earlier this week about my uh, thermostat okay. and my temperature not rising up. Mm-hmm. So I, re- I replaced it with uh, the recommended thermostat setting uh, was 195 this correct the 95 tahoe yes sir and I, I was curious when i pulled off that metal housing that the hose there was no gasket now i got the rubber seal that kind of fits around the right. edge of the thermostat yeah the thermostat is the seal that's the seal uh, okay the okay mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, that's what I was. I, was, I had. Yeah, it fits kind of like a little recess in the intake yeah. manifold, okay. and then the thermostat housing they call the other part just mashes it all together, and it seals around there. But there's no separate gasket like there used to be. Okay. Well, that's what I wanted to check on. I wanted to yeah. make sure I wasn't. Did that fix your problem? Absolutely. Oh, perfect. And Great. you know what you may even notice, Trey? You may notice that your fuel mileage goes up some now. Wonderful. Because the number one input to fuel mileage is engine temperature. And if that temperature starts to drop and the computer sees it drop and it's going to start, it doesn't have a choke, so it starts double pulsing the injectors. It thinks the engine's cold. Yeah, or it yeah, is I, cold. We think, well, and also get a lot of extra wear and tear because yeah. all that extra fuel is going to wash down your cylinder wall. So you did yourself a big, big favor by getting that repaired real soon. A third thing that can happen is that extra gas can go in your catalytic converter and cause the catalytic converter to fail. So well, I got, I'm sorry, I got one more quick question. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so is it normal for that temperature to fluctuate? It seems like it fluctuates a lot more than it did before, where it just kind of after that thermostat opens up and it would settle back down, it would kind of stay right around whatever that temperature was. And now it kind of fluctuates up and down. You may have a little bit of air trapped in the system. That would be okay. the number one cause for that. Now, that particular system will self-bleed. That should You need to keep an eye on it and see if your, your fluid level goes down. Okay. Because it may take in another half a gallon or so at some point, you'll see your reservoir drop. Okay. Because what can happen, be sure when you bleed it, turn your heater on high okay. to let it flow through the heater core and all that sort of thing. If you've okay. got rear heat, turn if it on If you have rear also. heat, cut that on also. It may have okay. a little air trap somewhere in the system. It should work right. itself out within a few days. Awesome. All righty. Thanks, y'all. Okay, Trey. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number if you want to be part of the Automotive Hour. We'd love to have you. And Trey noticed that his engine temperature just wasn't getting as high as, as which it used is to. very astute. A lot of people don't pay attention to those gauges. But when you notice that, that is the time to act right now. Now, a newer car would set a check engine light for that. Right. It's not warming up in time. It's got a certain time right. amount that when the engine starts in so much time, it has to be at this temperature. Yeah, I think it's a P0132 code. It'll set. But on a 95, it doesn't do that. Correct. Now, the problem is if you ignore that, or some people are under the mistaken impression that, well, a cold engine is even better. Yeah, the colder it is, the better. No, no, no. It's got to be at full operating temperature. Less is not better any more than more is better. Correct. The right amount is correct. But what happens, you start to burn more fuel, which is bad enough, but that extra fuel in the form of running too rich can start, to set, it can start setting oxygen sensor codes and all that, and you may end up changing a bunch of parts you don't have to change. But it can also get into the catalytic converter. Which is not designed to burn excessive fuel. Designed to burn gasoline at all, just a few fumes that remain in there. So the next step you see, first off, you usually see like an oxygen sensor code pop in. Well, you may go in and change the oxygen sensor. Well, light comes back on. Sure. And you may change something else. Light comes back on, but the car still runs good. Being a 95, you don't have to have inspection sticker checked on that. So you say, well, I'll just live with it. Well, the light's already on, so now the catalytic converter goes bad. By the time you get ready to get this light fixed, you got five codes in there, and you're into a couple thousand bucks. <laughs> that, well, that or you melt down a converter, and the Plugs car running. Now the car won't go when it's overheating. Right. So, yeah, but it just gets worse and worse and worse. And a lot of times people will say, oh, check engine light. Well, but the check engine light is your buddy. That's right. your friend. It's trying to tell you something's wrong. It's telling you something is not right here. And many times it can catch it way before you're going to notice any symptoms. Sure. So because the car still seemingly runs fine does not mean you just ignore the check engine light. Just because you tried what your buddy said and you tried what the guy who used to work on cars said and it's still on 
that does not mean it's okay. That's right. So if something is wrong, and if you get it fixed now, it will be a lot less than if you let it go on to the point where it starts tearing other things up. Let's go back to our phones. Herb, good morning, Herb. Good morning. I fixed in the valve cover on a, my generator the other day, and I went up to the store and bought some gasket sealer, and they said this is here is the very best you can use. So I put anaerobic, and it let it set up to the next day, and it still and it leaked. And I pulled it apart, and the, it was the stuff on the outside that you could see that squirted out was set up. But the in where the two pieces clamped together was still just gooey as it was, and it hmm. came out of the tube. Is yeah. there something I'm doing wrong? I don't know anything you could do wrong, Herb. I mean, I don't it, like putting gasket sealer on, on new gaskets anyway. Yeah, I don't put gasket sealer, but this is well, this sealer instead of a gasket, right? It didn't even have, have a gasket, gasket right. Yeah. Okay. okay. More and more you see that. I tell you, we've got a sealer that we buy from Chrysler that we use on just about everything now. And for some reason, Chrysler's not my favorite car company, but they just got it right with that sealer. We buy it by the case, and Mm -hmm. we use that on just about everything. And, I mean, it does a really good job. We have not had any problems, even on things where we had problems previously. Using this stuff seems to work really well. But... I guess it's just a matter of what they put into the stuff. You know, it may be based on humidity. It may be on temperature. It may have been a bad batch. Who knows? Well, this anaerobic is supposed to dry with absence of oxygen. Correct. Evidently, I must have some oxygen. You had enough getting in there. Yeah, that's the way that Loctite and all works when it's blocked off by tightening the thing. And it may be a very good sealer. It just may not be the right sealer for that application. Because, as you said, if there's enough thickness there, air may still get to it, keep it from catalyzing like it's supposed to but do we buy that stuff from chrysler and it just seems to work really good well i'm gonna be going by there park apart with you yeah okay uh, the red rtv did do the job but uh mm-hmm. i'm gonna try that stuff you're talking about yeah we oh. just uh and i if you call me at or send me an email i can get you the part number off of it monday but it's if you just go to chrysler and tell them you want that real good rtv they sell it, it is an rtv there. yeah it is an I rtv know. and and they make it i don't know they came out with that one it has some kind of leak problem and they engineered that stuff to fix it and i had one of my techs that used to work for chrysler and he's the one who brought it to our attention and so we started using it and we start using it more and more and more the only time we don't use it is if say gm ford toyota honda has a specific sealer for a specific purpose we use the mm-hmm. specific one for that but when it calls for a general rtv we use this on everything Okay, dope. All right. All right. Thank you for All the information. All right, Mr. Herb. Thanks, man. All right, bye. Bye-bye. All right, I see it's just about time for our little midterm break here. <laughs> we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Got to run, Paul. I'm heading to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it in once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems early. And they remind me of important upcoming maintenance. Things like oil changes, changing my timing belt, tire wear. Yeah. A general inspection each year would be a great thing for my marriage. Paul, thanks for bringing Marie in for her general inspection. Overall, she's in great shape. I did dial back her shopping system to save you a little money, and her nag button was stuck, so I loosened that up so you can work on your golf game and not those honeydews. As far as preventive maintenance, you've got a big anniversary coming up in April, so put that on your calendar, and I'd suggest flowers for no reason and more compliments. And Agco saved me thousands of dollars. Paul? Paul, are you listening? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Sounds like I need to take Marie, I mean my car, into Agco for a general inspection. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Cause the man with 
Hey, welcome back. If you just joined us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Sure appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. If we can help you out, give us a call, 291-6901. And if you happen to miss your prime opportunity this morning, you can always go to the website, get your questions answered that way. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the little form with the vehicle you're working on and the symptom you have, and send it on in. There you go. Couldn't be any easier than that. And we don't mind answering email. We do that all the time. What I do ask is that you don't call the shop because I'm not going to be able to come to the phone. It's just with the way things are set up, we've got ladies that answer the phone who can answer any question about doing business with Agco. They can, they're not going to diagnose the car over the phone because we can't do that. Right. But they do set up appointments. They can answer any questions you might have. And my job is basically running the shop and working with the techs to make sure they get everything out. So I'm not able to come to the phone. So send me an email. I will be glad to answer any questions you have that way. But that's the only way we can do it. Other than the show. Other than the show. That's right. You can call here and you can get a live answer. There you go. Even better. But we were talking about just different things, and we touched on the topic of making it. I don't think they intentionally make it more difficult. They just don't go out of their way to make it any easier. And the the thing about it is things differ from manufacturer to manufacturer, even model to model. What you diagnose on this vehicle with this symptom, you have to go a different route on this vehicle with the same symptom. So if you're working on multiple vehicles, it becomes that much more complex. It does. And like you said, there are certain vehicles that have certain pattern failures. And I guess the only way to know that is just experience with the vehicles. And I had another fellow who had written, and he says occasionally, very intermittently, he would turn the key on his Kia, and it wouldn't start. It wouldn't crank. Okay, wouldn't crank. And then if you kept trying, it might start, or if you jumped it off, it might start. But again, maybe it should be a coincidence. And he says, could that be the switch or the starter? So, yeah, it could be either one. But on that particular car, we have changed a number of inhibitor switches, Uh which is basically the park neutral safety type switch on the transmission for that problem intermittently. Now, it kind of goes back to what we are talking about before. It's a relatively inexpensive part. It's right there on top. Fairly easy to change if you're just going to guess. And in some cases where you can't duplicate it in the shop, all you can do is guess. Sure. But you wouldn't guess at a $400 starter. You would guess at maybe this $25 inhibitor switch. <laughs> exactly. Know? Same thing with ignition switch. It's probably $100, $125, $130 for the ignition switch and then probably a couple hours it. to get in there and change it. Right. So if we're just going to guess, let's guess something cheap with well, a high failure rate. Exactly. You got a high, the, the shop knows this is a high failure rate on this type car. Right. Now, the thing is, if you go in and you request the shop does make an educated guess at something, you can't get mad. Well, y'all just worked on it still doing the same thing. No, exactly. no, no. You have to give up that right if you are asking them to make a guess based on their experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the other option is bring it in, leave it with me. When it acts up, we'll test it, and then I'll tell you exactly what it is. Exactly. We can do that. But we have to charge you for all that time we spend and because things, that's the way we make a living. And things that are so intermittent, they only happen once maybe a week, you're going you're gonna to spend a you're whole gonna lot of time one heck of a lot trying of to time. find that. But the point is you can't get mad at someone if you ask them well give me your best guess Mm -hmm. because that's what they're doing they're trying to help you and they're trying to save you money correct but they are not perfect they are not divine so their guess may be wrong now the odds are in your favor 
And we do that a lot of times. I'll tell people, well, we could try this. You have about a 75% chance of fixing the problem Mm -hmm. at this cost. The cost of going further with diagnosis is going to probably be this much. However, you have to understand if we do this and it doesn't do it, we still have to do the other. Exactly. But we may do this and circumvent all the other. So it may be far, far less expensive to make an educated guess if you have a high failure part and it's relatively inexpensive. And there again, you're playing the odds. That's exactly what you're doing. And a lot of people do not understand about odds. And again, even with odds, even if I have really good odds, it depends on the downside. Sure. Because there are some things I cannot take a chance on just because the downside is too extreme. You know, I jokingly was talking to a fellow the other day, and I said an example of that, if I bring out a jar with 500 little candies in it, okay, and I take, okay, there's 500 candies in this jar. Two of them are really cyanide. And if you get one of those two, you'll die instantly. Sure. But I will pay you $1,000 for every one you will eat. Well, the average thinking person isn't going to eat even one. Exactly. Even though the odds are pretty high, you could probably take a fair number of these without ever hitting one of those two. I mean, the odds are very high. The downside is just too great. Exactly. You just can't live with it. Now, if I say by the same token, okay, there's 500 in here, and if you get one of these two, I'm going to slap you on the wrist. Well, well yeah, I'm going to eat a whole bunch of them. <laughs> Again, it's all risk and reward. You know, if your reward is high enough and your risk is low enough, then you can afford to gamble. Sure. And that's true of everything in the world. That's one of those reasons why I always advise against extended warranties because I think the cost of the warranty is too high relative to the risk you're taking if you just take the car and take care of it and don't buy the warranty. Mm-hmm. It's just a risk-reward type situation. And that's sort of how a lot of money is made in the world, whether it's buying stocks or doing anything else. You have to weigh out the risk at reward. It's a risk management Correct. sort of thing. You can't avoid all risk. A fellow who says, well, I never go. I told him we go to Mexico a lot because we enjoy it. There. Well, I don't go to Mexico. It's too dangerous. I said, what do you mean it's too dangerous? Well, in such and such. Well, that's like saying there were riots in Los Angeles, so I'm not going to Orlando. Right. You know, I'm not going to the United <laughs> States. I mean, you got a risk-reward thing there. The risks are very low and rewards are high. You, you can't avoid all risk. You just have to decide you what your risk tolerance is. There you go. And then go from there. Let's go back to our phones. Kevin, good morning, Kevin. Good morning, guys. Lewis and Brian, good to talk to you guys this morning. I'm from here in West Virginia. Okay, great. I called before. Hey, I had a couple of questions really quickly, if I may. You bet. Uh, the first one, I actually tried messing with the headlights on. I, I have an Audi A4, mm-hmm. and I was trying to mess with the headlights on there. It's about a 2005, and I noticed that I was having trouble getting the left beam adjusted correctly, and whenever I looked into it further, it looks like somebody, you have the little refre- reflector in front of the light bulb mm-hmm. that reflects it back into Correct. the lens itself. And it looks like somebody actually took a screwdriver or something or maybe a bulb that didn't belong there and shoved that thing to where it's actually, it's been bent out to Mm -hmm. where the beam is going up and it's angering truck drivers. Right. (laughs) So I was going to try and see if I can't use one of the screwdrivers with the pick and see if I can't maybe bend that back. Yeah. The problem is they, as you guys know, they don't give you any room anymore on these cars to really get at your hands in there. Sometimes you have to take these light bulbs out or the headlights out completely. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But just want to see if you had any idea on that as far as ways to fix that. I don't know. At this stage, I might just go ahead and get new, you know, different headlights to put on there. Yeah, it would uh, depend, if I can't get in there, it depends, Kevin, on the cost of the replacement. I mean, if the cost of replacement is fairly reasonable, I would probably go ahead and go with that. If the cost of replacement is, you know, excessive or obscene, as it is in some cases, then of course you got nothing to lose by trying to fix what you got. What you may even consider is if in the very bottom of that housing, there's a flat spot where you could maybe drill a little access hole there sure. where it doesn't mm-hmm. show, then get in there with a pair of forceps and grab it and kind of tweak it around till you get it like you want. And then take some okay. RTV, clear RTV, and just seal the hole up when you're finished. You know, okay. if let's say a headlight assembly is a thousand bucks, then you can do an awful sure. lot of tinkering. <laughs> You have a oh, headline sure, assembly sure. is 85 bucks. Well, you know, not so much. But Yeah, I'm not sure about that, Carl, but you may have to pull the bumper off to get the headlight assembly out. You may. You yeah. may. But, again, yeah. it just depends. If the, the headlight assembly is not that expensive and it's a lot of labor to get it out, then I would probably just take it out and replace it. But if it's a very expensive part or not too bad to get out, you know, you could probably try something like that and see what happens. Well, I tell you what, guys. I, I once, uh, once upon a time, I thought the people with Audis had money. Now I realize that people with Audis had money. Had money. <laughs> 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 uh, I understand. You know, <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, the parts for these cars, they are expensive, and I kind of knew that going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's without a doubt the nicest car I've ever owned. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've listened to you guys talk about Fords before, and we're a family of Fords. We had a family member who worked at the Ford Cleveland Motor Plant. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, it's a shame that the, the problems that we had with those vehicles, with the 5.4 engine, with oh, yeah. uh, a transmission on a Ford Focus, and it's just like, we can't afford to drive them. I know. Anymore and it just, we're just working on them. And I, it's a shame. It just seems that the longer they come, the sorry they get, too. I mean, we had a, what, 11 or 12 come in the other day. The timing chain, front, the primary timing oh, yeah. chain has stretched, throwing check engine light. And, I mean, it's a fairly common problem. They got a bulletin out for it, no kind of recall, no kind of help with it. But, I mean, you have to take the whole front of the motor down to get in there and change this timing chain. And that chain's got to be, what, three, four foot long? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just, man, they have gone berserk on this technology issue and to the exclusion of building a decent car, to my way of thinking. Absolutely, and that's the way it is with the Audis, too. Uh, with, like, the, uh, I think the S4, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those, you actually have to pull the whole motor out to change that timing chain. There's no mm-hmm. way to do it in the car. And that's, oh, I know, it's crazy. It's a shame. The other thing I had really quickly, I actually have a Harley-Davidson uh, okay. Sportster. And whenever I was talking to one of the mechanics, I had the oil changed at 1,000 miles, which is what they advised. Mm-hmm. And then I had it done again at 2,500. They don't advise doing it until 5,000 miles. Yeah. And, you know, this is a motorcycle that right now it's about three years old, and <laughs> I have about 3,000 miles. Right. So, you know, I'm changing oil because time is the issue. Yeah. Uh, and, and I know if I'm going on a long trip, you know, it'd be different. But I actually had a mechanic say, well, you can change the engine oil too often. And I thought, that doesn't uh, make any sense. <laughs> no, I don't see that. I mean, it, why would you even not? change the oil it's just it's cheap it's not gonna ever hurt anything and it's, it's not got worth the help yeah it's just not again it, like we were talking about earlier risk reward i mean all changes are cheap compared to an engine Absolutely. yeah compared to anything yeah. even compared to a seal going out because it got too hard but no you can't change mm-hmm. all too often well guys i sure appreciate it i love your show you guys have a great service i know you talked about it just a week or two before but man we wish there was somebody like you up here because you know, it's it's a little bit of a drive. I'd need an oil change by the time I got down there. That's <laughs> right. You'd need to change again by the time you got home. So, uh, guys, how's the foliage sure and all up in that area? Getting pretty it's, yet? It's just finally starting to turn, actually. Ah. Um, 
and it, there are uh, there are some nice areas around here. Oh yeah, we're still having really nice weather. It's still in the seventies. Wow, you know here. So usually by this time of year we'd be getting down to fifty. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's a beautiful time of the year, and it's almost the most wonderful time of the yeah, year. Yeah, so oh, absolutely. I'm ready for snow. There you go. <laughs> we, we used to go up to the New River Gorge area a lot, and yeah. I always loved that area. It's just so pretty up there. They're actually having Bridge Day this week. Oh wow! Yeah, I yep. knew that was coming absolutely. up pretty soon. Yep. Well, guys, thank you so much. Hi, you guys have a wonderful day. You Talk bet. You. Thanks, Colin, man. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yep. I-291-6901 the number. He called from West Virginia, and you call him West Baton Rouge. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a call. He was talking about some of the cars, and it just seems that you do have way more problems with a lot of newer stuff. And these newer recommendations, again, you got to remember, it goes back to what we are talking about before. The car companies are in the business of making money. Mm-hmm. They make money by selling cars. Now, why do they tell you go 10,000 miles on an all change? Because at 100,000 miles, yeah. if you make 100,000 miles, the car is destroyed. There's nothing left to work with. That's right. It needs an engine at 100,000 miles, which is the... Probably total car. Well... It was the original intent of the car, 100,000 miles. But, again, you know, an engineer that gives those criteria, they tell him, okay, what is the longest we can go on maintenance intervals? And the first thing he says, how long has the car got to last? That's it. 100,000 miles. Okay. Most car companies think that five years or 100,000 miles is the life of a car. Mm -hmm. You've gotten your money's worth, crush it, and go buy another car. Well, that's what they want. Now, if you can afford to do that, then that's great. Follow the recommendations. You will be fine. Yeah, but with you and I, I mean, I drive a car 20 years. Oh, yeah. I've got Easy. To, I got to go 20 years. You know, I won't mind to be like a B-52 bomber. There you go. Your 100-year service line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't ever want to change it, you know. Let's see if we can take a quick All little right. call for next break. We've got David online. Good morning, David. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for your show. Thank you. Hey, I got a question. I kind of a believer like you guys. You keep a car, you keep it running and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And got a car that my daughter owns, an O2 Trailblazer. I've replaced the engine a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. It's doing great. But she is working in New Orleans now, and she called and said, Dad, we've got to do something about the, we call it squeaking. Okay. When she goes up into the parking garage, mm-hmm. there's you know, all kind of bumps and all those kind of things. Everything works great on the car, except it sounds like a, I call it a rattle trap. Yes, sir. And so are there some things that, you know, and I try to keep it greased when I change the oil every, you know, 3,000 miles and all that, but most common on that, David. Yeah, most common on that, the lower control arm bushings will go out on them. It's got like Uh a, that's, it's a bar that Mm -hmm. the bushings are made into. And they weren't really stout from the factory. They make a few thousand, you know, 10, 15, 30, 40,000 miles. Maybe even 100, but and they, they, they go, go out, out and they'll start to... Ah, 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 ah. Yeah, right, the, exactly. The upper control arm bushings will do the same thing. It's a bushing just pressed into the arm, and they'll but wear out. You can and change make just noise. those bushings where, right. Lord, you have to change the whole little piece. Not obscenely expensive, but... A little you time know, labor. Yeah, if, laboring. If an O2 model, I mean, you figure that thing is, what, six, 15, 16 years old, that rubber sure. just starts dry rotting. But, yeah, most likely have those replaced. That, that'll take care of that noise for you. That's the lower and yeah, upper, upper and lower control, control arm, arm bushes. bushes. And that's certainly yes. not the only thing that can do it, but that would be the most common thing on that vehicle. Yeah, because what's a little bit weird is that you can go in the front mm-hmm. and, you know, because I'm thinking, well, is it kind of shocks too? So 
you bounce it up and down right. when it's just sitting there, right. and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't rattle. Yes, it's not loaded. Right. In other words, when you hit the brake or when you accelerate, and the body and the chassis move independent of each other, that's when it's loaded up. That's when you can get to creaking, like going that's uphill into a parking garage. You might right. push the brake, and uh, uh, when yeah. the yeah. goes up and down. And generally, and and, and that's all in the front, right? There's yes. nothing in the back. There are bushes in the back, but they're not nearly as common on that unless you got just a gajillion miles on it. I, that one's got yeah. leaf springs on the back, doesn't it? I'm not sure. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not at my house. I, so don't, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember not that sure. one. I mean, there are some things but in the yeah. back, but not nearly as common. Usually it's front end. But definitely not like shock. So we never replaced the shock. Well, I, mean, never I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say never, but it's not as likely as this other stuff. Yeah. Shocks usually don't make that kind of noise. They usually start bouncing around and all. I mean, they could. Sure, yeah. Probably and not it doesn't, as likely. You know, soon, yeah, you know how my dad told me, you know, when I was young. Right. You bounce it up and down, and it immediately stops. And know? if it so, was the shock, I would think it would do it sitting still also. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All righty. Okay. Well, that's what I need. I appreciate it. We'll take a look at that, guys. All right, Thank Dave. you. Thanks, man. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Take our last little break and be right back with a whole lot more. Kate, we can shop tomorrow. I'm off to Agco for my car's general inspection. I take it once a year so the team at Agco can catch any potential problems before they become huge repairs down the road. You know, things like small rattles and shakes can become issues and you never can be too... A general inspection each year would be great for my marriage. Kate, thanks for bringing David in for his general inspection. Overall, he's in pretty good shape for an older model. I replaced his sensitivity regulator, which was getting a little worn. His not listening to my partner and leave the seat up lights were both about to come on, so I fixed that. As far as preventive maintenance, more fiber, less beer, and watch his portion control, especially on the weekends. And thank goodness for Agco. Kate? Kate, are you listening? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sounds like a general inspection from Agco can improve my marriage. I, I mean vehicle. Uh, improve my vehicle. Keep your car on the road longer. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldersan, president of Agco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by my side. Still got a couple of minutes. You can get a quick call in. We'll get, get a, you an answer. There you go. That's exactly right. You had mentioned that one thing. We were talking a little bit about diagnosis and stuff. And windshield wipers are one of those things that a lot of times they will quit working, depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. I had a friend of mine who lived in Arizona, Yuma, Arizona. So, Obviously, it does not rain a whole lot <laughs> in Yuma, Arizona. He had a motorhome and decided to come down and visit. Well, when he got just about the other side of Lafayette, it started raining. Okay. And it started raining really, really hard. Well, number one, he didn't even know what a windshield wiper switch was on his vehicle, <laughs> so he had to pull off on the side. Finally got the owner's mouth, figured out where the windshield wiper switch was, turned it on. Well, they didn't move. Right. Went out, grabbed the two arms, and pulled on them. And well, the rubber welded to the glass. Right. The arm starts going up now, scratching the devil out of his wish. <laughs> so the, the moral to, of that story is don't leave the arms on the, the motor on when yeah. you pull the wipers off. That's right. So I mean, he it all worked out okay. He was able to get somewhere yeah. and put some new wiper blades, clean the windshield for him, and all that. But it's one of those things that if you live in an area where it doesn't rain a whole lot, you still need to test those windshield wipers from time to time, make sure they are working and they're not stuck to the glass. Make sure they will clean the windshield. That's the biggest thing. You know, they sit for so long in an idle position, Mm -hmm. the sun bakes on them, and if they do happen to stick, if the motor's strong enough, it will tear them loose from the windshield. 
But what it does is it, it tears the edge off of them, and they will no longer clean the windshield correctly. Well, that sometimes it breaks the what they call the wiper transmissions. I know that Toyota had problem down the Rav Four, uh-huh. where if anything bound a little bit, there was a little bracket in there that held the motor and the transmission in place. It would bend that bracket, yep, and pop out. Then the wipers would quit working, and those are actually under a recall right now. So if you have a Rav Four with that problem, you can get that covered for free through Toyota. But a lot of vehicles had that. Some of your Hondas had the same problem where the bushings would wear out and it'd pop out, quit working. Right. It's just a little plastic bushing on a steel ball stud that right. would, it would relatively is No recall on that one I'm aware of, but relatively easy to fix and relatively inexpensive parts. The point is, if you wait until it's raining to find out your wipers don't work, it's going to be very, very inconvenient. Sure. At least, particularly if you decide to visit South Louisiana, (laughs) where we may get 12 inches of rain in a very short period of time. And something else that will tear up a wiper blade is a chip in the windshield or a crack in the windshield Mm -hmm. because that windshield is no longer smooth anymore. And when that blade comes across it, it's going to cut it. Mm -hmm. And it will cut it to where it will quit cleaning the windshield correctly. And I find that wiper blades just don't seem to hold up as well as they used to. I like a good wiper blade on my car. And I've gone to those uh, monobeam types, right. which are more expensive, but I find they do hold up a lot better. But I find I still have to change them about once a year to keep them working properly. On the regular standard white blades, I'm changing those every three months to try to keep my windshield looking decent where I can see to drive. Yeah, try and drive and all. Because like I said, I do like a good, clean wipe on, on right. the thing. Now, one way that you can sort of exercise your wipers is just to use the windshield washers sure. to clean the windshield. And if you can do it, you want to push the washer button first to wet the glass before you have the wiper make a dry sweep. A lot of times when you push that wiper, they the, both the washer switch, it automatically turns on the wiper blades. Mm-hmm. So in that in that situation, you wouldn't be able Not to do much that. You can but do. if you could, yeah, that would be the yeah, thing to do. I know on my, both my cars, I can actuate the washers without the wipers. So I always spray a little water does a couple of things. Number one, it takes a lot of load off the system because a wet windshield is much easier than a dry windshield. Sure. And number two, it takes that blade, instead of wiping that dust across your dry windshield, which can scratch it. You remember back when the first time you ever washed a car or cleaned your dad's car and you went out there with a dry rag and started, and started wiping, wiping the, the dust, dust off, off and he came out and beat the tar out of it. You could <laughs> sc- scratch his car all up. You learn that real quick. You do not want to wipe dust off of a smooth surface because it's dust well, is you're very not, abrasive. Right. You're not wiping it. You're actually grinding it into whatever you're wiping it off That's of. That's right. So you're going to end up scratching up the surface, and you'll see little haze marks on. You have to polish the car, detail the car to get them out. Same thing with a windshield, and it's particularly bad over time. If it keeps going on, it'll scratch that windshield up to the point where when it rains or it's hazed up, and the sun hits it, you won't be able to see out of it. Exactly. And then you have to end up replacing your windshield. And while we're on the topic of windshields, the windshield washer fluid, mm-hmm. if you will if you will use the fluid that is supposed to be put in that reservoir, right. it will save you a lot of trouble and headache down the line because regular water, as it sits, it builds a bacteria. Right. That bacteria will fill up and turn into a goo, and it'll stop the lines up and the little sprayers that spray the washer onto the, the windshield. So Yeah, the regular washer fluid has a bacteriocide and it also has an antifreeze in it to keep it from freezing. So, yeah, always use the washer fluid. I see we're totally out of time. We're going to start getting on out of here. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Tell your friends and go to your favorite broadcast or rebroadcast service. Find a written review and fill it out for us. That's right. We certainly appreciate it. And preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend. <laughs>